Welcome to Joiners, the podcast with Tim and Danny, where each week we explore the world of hospitality by chatting with its most colorful characters. That's right. And this week we have a big one. We got a big fish that we reeled in. It's a whale. Yeah, it's a whale. <laughs> a proverbial whale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we got Kevin Bame. That's right. Yeah. And uh, of Boca know, Group. Of Boca Group. And he. Uh, Dan, you the may first... not know this actually, but. The Boca name, it's uh, Bame. And Cats. And Cats put together. For Rob oh, Cats okay, and Kevin it. Um, Yeah, they were the first people I worked for in the city of Chicago when I moved yeah. here in 2009. The and first job I got. I don't even know if Tim has heard this story, but I was walking around town with some resumes printed out, 2009, yeah. taking well, the train. Hold on. So on this resume... Because you were, you had been educated as a bartender at this point. No, I hadn't, but I think I had oh, lied really? on the resume. Oh. I had, I had no knowledge That's of okay. bartending. That's okay. Kevin lied on a resume too. So That's true. <laughs> it's fine. Um, but basically, I had like a list of places I wanted to work, and one of them was Alinea. And I went to Alinea, and I tried to hand them a resume, but the door was locked. And right next door to Alinea is and was Boca. Boca. Yeah. So I walk into Boca and I think that like maybe Ian Goldberg, who's now I think the COO of the company, yeah. who was the director of operations at the time. I think Ian was like just posted up at the host stand, probably doing admin or whatever. And I was like, Hey, you guys hiring? And he's like, I'll, you know, leave your resume with me and we'll, we'll let you know. Mm -hmm. So the following, maybe that evening or the following day, I got a call from Ian and he's like, how would you like to be a bar back at perennial, which is one of our sister restaurants, sister concepts. Uh, the uniform is all black. So you just make sure you have all black, everything button down mm -hmm. shirt, pants, belt, shoes. And I, I didn't have any, I don't think I had black pants, black button down, black belt or anything. So I had to like, pre -stock. so I had to get, uh, yeah, I had to get <laughs> all of, uh, I had to get all the stuff ran. I think I like borrowed some from my friend who I was living with at the time, Ted. And uh, I showed up to bar back at Perennial, and that was my first gig in the in the city of Chicago. Wow! I worked my way up from bar back to uh, brunch bartender to bartender, and that kind of gave me my start in hospitality in Chicago. That's that's very actually. I have an origin story that involves Kevin as well. Wow! <laughs> actually, this reminded me of it. Um, when we started, so our first um, hospitality client was Alinea Group. Sorry, Danny. Um, the door wasn't locked for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Tim got into Alinea. <laughs> but we did, did, we did uniforms for Alinea, and then word kind of spread that we were doing uniforms, and we had some people reach out. Like Goose Island came to us to do some uh, work shirts for the brewery. And then we're like, man, I wonder if there's more opportunity here. So uh, I wrote two letters, uh, handwritten letters, and I sent them out. One was to Donnie Medea. And one was to Kevin Bame. Wow. And they both got back to me. And to this day, we still make their uniforms. That's great. Yeah. So Kevin put us both on. Yeah. You know. And then he, he talked about another uh, handwritten letter <laughs> in, the, in the interview. And I'm like, geez, how many people are hitting this guy? Up? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess it wasn't that special. Yeah. But, um, uh, but yeah, it was cool to have uh, Kevin on. Everyone who's listening to this probably knows about Boca Restaurant Group, um, but if you don't, they are a massive player in the hospitality space. Yep, they have countless concepts, concepts across many cities. Um, more stuff surely in the works. Kevin has done work outside of Boca Group as well, from Beyond, as well as he's got a book coming down the pipe. That's right, teasing the book. Uh, I'm excited yeah. to read that. That'll be a good read for absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean. 
with someone as uh, as good at you know telling stories as Kevin, this was uh, an easy interview to conduct. Yeah, this episode does not disappoint. We're very excited for it. So, so let's without, keep this intro short. <laughs> that's right. Without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Kevin Bain. This episode of Joiners is brought to you by Host Ready to Drink Premium Bottled Cocktails. Choose from Old Fashioned, Martini, and coming soon, a Manhattan. For more information, go to Host, that's H-O-S-T-E, cocktails.com, connect with quality. Yeah, so wait, you were but building I, out Belena and your glass guy disappeared. Glass guy disappears. There's actually a picture of me that somebody in our company took where I was sitting on the stairs of Belena and I'm crying. And I, I posted it years ago and I said, everything you need to know about opening up a restaurant is captured in this one photo. It's me crying on stairs. Oh. Um, so yeah, the, the guy who was doing our glass rooms disappeared, couldn't find him. And I remember going to a party that night and it was the opening of, I think it was RPM Italian. And I was trying to tell Rich Melman that story. And he was like, Kevin, you know, years from now, you'll, you'll remember, you won't remember exactly when you opened. It's not, you opened on May 12th or June 15th. It, it won't matter. And I remember walking away and being like, wow, I think it's easy for Rich to say. I think yeah. he's got a little more money in the old bank account than I do. But he wasn't wrong. Yeah. You know, once you... Once you have some real perspective. Yeah. Danny <laughs> and I talk like, about yeah. it frequently where early on in business, everything is the end of the world, every order. And I still feel that way. I take everything very personally. And um, you do learn that like fretting that stuff isn't going to make a difference. It's how you react. And I think yeah. you so learned what, what you end up doing. Yeah. What did you end up doing? Well, we ended up finding him. Okay. <laughs> And he found somebody else to help. And, you know, it was like two weeks that we ended up waiting. We were training everybody already. And we all know this game that you yeah. play with people. And you're like, okay, guys, we're not going to open on this date. We're going to open on this yeah. date. And people are getting squirrely and they've already yeah. like quit and their jobs. Yeah, training and, and Yeah, extra, and, you know, yeah. it was it, at that point in our lives, it was still every day felt like terror. Yeah. <laughs> Fear was driving my ship at that point. And so. Yeah. But yeah, I, it's important when you, if you're the guy who sweats all the details in the beginning and gets worked up over all those details, you're probably also going to be successful. Yeah. It's a bummer that you have to go through that. But part of the DNA of most of the people that I know that are successful is they sweat the small stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, Hopefully you evolve as a human <laughs> to where you get to a certain point in your life where you don't have to do that anymore and you're, you can stop producing so much cortisol in your body. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For us early on, it was like a delayed fabric shipment. And it's like, I feel the stress. Opening restaurants, I don't need to tell you it's stressful. And if something like uniforms is something I don't want any of our customers thinking about, that's the last thing they should be worrying about when they're opening a new place. And when I'm, if I'm, if there's even a chance that I could cause some sort of delay, I'm freaking out. So I look back, I like I used to call fabric vendors and just scream at them. And then one time this guy was like, he just, uh, he let me vent. And he's like, I wish that I was someone who you could yell at. And I was like, okay, <laughs> that's a really good point. <laughs> that's a really elegant way to say yeah. that. I, I like that. The, the best way to let you keep fuck going. You. I like that. Yeah. I, if I'm moved emotionally to the point of yelling at this point, it's probably not about restaurants you totally yeah, yeah. something else is going on um 
you know, I, it would have to be something super egregious. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. I have not uh, yelled inside of a business in a very long time. I should say me, me too. I was probably 24 at the time and that order meant everything. And um, yeah, I did like some immature stuff in the beginning, but I don't know that I was ever really a yeller. I was more of like a caustic, sarcastic, like say kind of a dig to someone (laughs) about doing something the wrong way. I'm trying to think of, you know, you've done so much stuff. You're a Titan of industry. Now, you know, you're mentioning rich and now you're more similar to him than you were when you told that story, you know, when that story took place, obviously. And I don't know about all that, but no, but I mean, you know, you're, you guys are doing a great job. Bo group is a huge restaurant group. And, you know, I think about when it was just Boca Mm -hmm. and how your life must've been then when everything yeah, like you're saying, matters well, so much. Well, Boca specifically, I'd Boca was my fifth restaurant. Um, right. I had just, but the first one the, in Florida. Uh, the other, right. I had two restaurants in Florida, one in Springfield, mm-hmm. and one in Nashville. Okay. All of them stuck together with bubble gum and scotch tape, oh, so they yeah. were not really. They were like sort of restaurants. Um, <clears throat> but when we opened Boca, not only was I opening up my first restaurant in a big city, but I was also having my first child. Okay. And it was kind of a surprise. Um, uh, Courtney and I hadn't known each other very long and she lived in another city and she'd gotten pregnant and told me and I was like, Oh God. And you know, I didn't know why that. Don't, why don't you move here and let's have a baby together. We barely knew each other. So the family was at the beginning of Boca. It was, we, okay. I had moved here. She lived in Nashville. I had met her on a trip to Nashville and things, life happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, so at the beginning of Boca, my, your motivations are slightly different because now you're not just taking care of yourself. You're taking care of a family. Right. And you're like, this has to work. (laughs) Yeah. And how did you balance that? It was really, really difficult. Um, I I remember. Did Rob have a family at that point? So Jameson was two and Shelby was born the first week of Boca being open. Wow. So there's a lot of family stuff happening. And for me, We'd had a general manager who only worked a couple of weeks and didn't work out. So I became the de facto general manager of Boca. So I worked six days a week from like 9 a.m. to midnight. And then to see Sophia when she was born, they would pull up in the in next to the dumpsters behind Boca during Kamita. So I would do family meal in the car with them. Courtney would cook something, we would eat in the car, I would snuggle in the back with Sophia, and then I would go back to work. Oh my God. And then I would just take Sundays off. That is insane. And so I remember... <laughs> I never I, knew it was like that. Yeah. So I remember yeah. finally finding a GM, mm-hmm. and I was so excited. And so for a couple of weeks, I, I got to like... Because before that, I was still popping in on Sundays too. And I remember, I was like, hey, Court, let's get a babysitter and let's go into Boca I just want to see, you know, how it's all going. Because I do really firmly believe, like, the best managers, you know, how does your place run when you're not there? Right. Like, it, there's a lot of people who try to wrap every their arms around everything so nobody else can do them. <laughs> Those yeah, are bad managers. Course, yeah. They might work really hard. but So I was like, hey, let's go see and make sure everything's cool. So I get to Boca, and the manager's not there. <laughs> and I asked new manager at and this I, point the, too, right? new general manager yeah. not there and so I asked one of the servers I go Nicole where is she at she goes she said she ran home to watch the finale of the Sopranos <laughs> in her just like no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's it a like great him. show yeah it sounds Listen, like something Tim would it's do. a great show I was like, motherfucker. <laughs> so then that manager didn't work out and I was like oh are you kidding me 
so there's this long period of time until um, until Louis Hickner became general manager that like I, it just felt like I had to be there all the time. Yeah, and and you know part of that was just like sustainability we talk about a lot in our business, but the sustainability of the restaurant has to go above all those things, right? Because then you have nothing. And so I, we were just fighting for respectability at that point and for, for some enough level of success that I could afford to have a family because Courtney also didn't have health insurance. Oh so we paid cash for the baby and I was, oh and God. I was really struggling. We lived in like a 700 square foot apartment and, Ugh. and it was, it was ugly, man. Yeah, It oh, was ugly and fearful. And the, the other day I had a meeting near Boca and I don't think I'd had a sandwich from pizza Capri since the opening. And I went in and, and got the cilantro wrap, which is what I used to get. And I'm sitting out in the front apron and one of our first general managers who now sells wine was walking out the front door as I was eating the cilantro wrap. And he goes, I don't think we've seen this movie in a long time. (laughs) (laughs) And I got this sense memory of all those feelings that I had at the beginning. Yeah. Sophia was about to go away to college and, and I was like, Oh my God, there was so much fear back then. (laughs) Time travel. So much fear. Wild. Let's talk about how you got into restaurants in the first place. So, Mm -hmm. You you grew up in Illinois, correct? I did. And then you, did you go to you went to U of I? I did. Okay. And then yeah. what did you study? So I was pre law, political science, and um, I had a couple roommates who ended up like uh, housemates that ended up becoming kind of legends, like um, Dave Eggers. Dave Eggers was one of <laughs> yeah. them. And I've told the story many times. Mike Hopkins, the last American astronaut in space, was another one. It's crazy. Wow. And one night. Dave was just giving me shit because he's just like, you don't want to be a lawyer. And I'm like, no, I really don't. He goes, well, what do you want to do? And you have to remember this is also 1989. So it wasn't that cool to be in restaurant business at that point. Yeah. He's like, and I go, well, it's kind of cheesy. He's like, well, what is it? And I'm like, I kind of want to open up my own restaurant. And he's like, well, why aren't you doing that? And I go, I, I don't have any money and I don't know anybody who does it. I have no mentors. And he's like, Kevin, Mike thinks he's going to be an astronaut. <laughs> 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 Yeah, Touché. I mean, I'll, yeah. I'll so tell, I, I yeah. dropped, I dropped out. Not just off of that, but like I just felt not quite where I was supposed to be at that point. I was watching a lot of people really excel at college, um, and I just I wasn't passionate about anything that I was reading or talking about, and and so I was like, let's go give this a try. I mean, like people always said that was gutsy, but like when you have nothing to lose, it's not that gutsy. I was like, well, let's go work at a legit restaurant for six months, take a semester. And if it doesn't work, I come back to college. And I went and a whole bunch of horrible things happened. I like dropped out and I drove my little beat up Jeep down to Florida and uh, nobody would hire me because I had no experience. And then I worked in an amusement park for a little while and I moved in with a guy who worked at the amusement park. I caught him stealing from me. We got in a fist fight. I ended up homeless. I live in my car. Oh my God. I heard a comedian say the other day, he said, um, he said, the first time that you live in your car, you think it's going to make a really great book someday. The second time you live in your car, you think there's probably not going to be a book. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I, I only lived in my car once. I lived in my car for a couple of weeks. And then um, I wrote a fake resume. And I went and I got a job as a captain in a restaurant that I had no business working in. And I was there a week. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I loved it. Yeah. I loved everything about it. I loved the cast of characters. I loved the energy. I loved being busy. Um, I loved getting instant 
gratification from people if they enjoyed their experience. Um, and I couldn't believe how much money I could make yeah. <laughs> as, yeah. as a server. And I was like, this is so fun. And so I just, I dug in right then. I was like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. So you knew before you even entered the industry that you wanted to be an owner. You wanted to own your own spot at some time. So it, I don't when, know quite what that meant at yeah. the time. You, you know, yeah, you figured it out quick. I, I, I thought guess. I threw a party every night. If I feel <laughs> messed it up, and then we clean it up, and then we do it again the next day, which is not totally. That's how Terry wrong. did Danny's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a real quick uh, a story related to Dave Eggers. So you know, fast forward a handful of years. You know, I'm looking up to Kevin, following all the stuff that he's doing. We've started Scoffle at this point in time. We should know I don't that know. Danny worked for both. Yeah, group. I did. We, yeah, so we I worked, worked together at Perennial. Yep. At Perennial. That's right. Um, so yeah, I'm working uh, this charity event for 826 because yeah. after college, I interned for an 826 in Seattle. So Dave Eggers is like a hero of mine. I'm working this event um, and Dave Eggers is giving a speech. And like, I kind of, I see Kevin there. Maybe we like have a word, you know, like, hey, how's it going? Whatever. Dave, go, you know, launches into a speech and he like calls out Kevin in the audience as like a, a big inspiration for him. And I'm already like, you know, envious <laughs> of Kevin, his success. <laughs> and then to have like your... Your idol just come so up there and then hero. shout out. Yeah. <laughs> and then shout out. I remember more him making fun of me on stage <laughs> than saying I was an inspiration to him. But um, but it was just so like, what a crazy, crazy moment. That's obviously how I knew you guys had, had gone to school together. Well, Dave, I think on stage that night, Dave said, he goes, you know how in college, like you just show up the next semester and somebody's not there. He's like, I just showed up one year. I was like, where's Kevin Bayman? They're like, oh, he dropped out to open up his own restaurant. He said he wanted to go work for a legitimate restaurant. And then he was like, well, where did he go? And they're like, the panhandle of Florida. <laughs> so Kevin, in his ultimate wisdom, thought that Panama City is where the greatest restaurants in the world are. Hey, it worked out. Yeah, it worked out. <laughs> so how long were you down in Florida? So I ended up saving up enough money, bartending and waiting tables, to open up a little six-table restaurant with my girlfriend at the time. And that was in 93. And then I got bought out from some people who wanted to develop that space in 95 opened up a wine bar, sushi bar, rock and roll bar in 95, sold it to a couple of guys from New Orleans in 97. And then that's when I moved to Springfield, Illinois and opened up my first kind of halfway legit restaurant. I opened like a 135 seater in Springfield in, in early 98. And that restaurant's still open actually. Wow. Wow. And um, at this point, are you putting up, you know, a hundred percent of the financing? Are you raising money? Yeah, I did my first, I saved up enough for my first restaurant and then parlayed that money into the second and then parlayed that money into the third and then sold it and parlayed that money into the restaurant in Nashville. Um, and then I lost all of it in Nashville. Mm. What was the Nashville concept? Nashville is called six degrees. Uh, it was 10,000 square feet. It was the first restaurant. If you know Nashville at all, it was the Gulch. Yeah. Very first development ever in the Gulch. Um, and I opened up a restaurant that was, you know, I was a little over my skis on that one, you know, managing 100 people in a 10,000 square foot restaurant. And really at the beginning, it was a massive success. Our opening night was Trisha Yearwood sang. And, yeah. Whoa. You know, and, uh, you know, I mean, it was star. George Strait was sitting there, you know, like it was 350 people. It was sold out. We had this great music show. We were on the cover of the Nashville scene talking about how we were changing Nashville. Um, and But we had overbuilt the place and we had a bill that we couldn't pay. We went over budget. Something I Classic, wasn't. Yeah. Something before that, that like there was no over budget. Hmm. I had a finite amount of money in my bank account. Oh, fair enough. And yeah. once that money was gone, 
this is what you opened with. Mm-hmm. Nashville was a different kind of situation where I got a final bill for construction. I was like, well, I don't have any money to pay this. And, you know, I was still, you know, I was 29 years old at that point and making dumb 29-year-old mistakes, and that was one of them. I put myself behind the eight ball, and that, that place eventually closed, and I lost all my money. And so probably, the, probably in retrospect, the best thing that ever happened to me um, but if you were one of those, um, things happen, uh, for you, not to you evangelists back then, I would have told you to fuck off <laughs> uh, because I was, I, you know, I went back home with my tail between my legs and after, you know, turning $0 into like a million dollars, I fucking lost everything mm. and felt like it felt like a moron. How it was a it, moron. How long did it take you to get over it? So it, how what year is it now no. <laughs> no. Um, well did you see it as like were, was there ever a time where you're like mm, maybe i should go back to school or were you like maybe restaurants are for you or never, are you just like nope. i'm smarter now i know what i fucked up on i never got there i wasn't a very good detective yet but i just thought i just thought i got screwed over mm. uh, i didn't have enough self-awareness to look back and say well you, you, the buck stops with you bro <laughs> maybe you should have had better lawyers and better accountants and you know stopped building here and made this decision better um, you know, they say the the most common trait of a CEO of a Fortune 500 company is the ability to make quick decisions. You can only make those quick decisions when you've done enough rotations of all right. this stuff to be able to make a quick decision. Mm-hmm. I was trying to make quick decisions with not having the basis for it. So, well, you had a spotless record leading up to it, you know. I did. I had my feathers way too high in the yeah. air. And so then you get shot down and you, you go back to work. And so I had thought that those first four restaurants were my bachelor's, master's, and PhD in restaurants. Turns out those were just my bachelor's. And when I got to do Boca, I had met, got introduced to Rob, and we'd had a cup of coffee in Nookie's in Old Town. And you know, my mom had given me the advice. She goes, don't go backwards. You always want to do Chicago. Go forward and do Chicago. You've learned all these lessons now. Go make it happen. Rob had four investors already. How did you and meet so, Rob? <clears throat> I, I had a friend who made two introductions for me. One was Michael Kornick. Um, she worked for Michael, and uh, she also knew Rob and introduced me to both of them. And I had back-to-back meetings with Kornick and Katz. Wow. Two very different meetings. <laughs> yeah. um, sure. And so Michael and I had talked about doing something together, but he was like, um, he was like, oh, maybe you go to Vegas and try to sort out Vegas for me first. And I was like, I don't know if that's the right thing for me to do at this point. Sort out Vegas and, is a fun mission. Yeah. <laughs> and that sounded bad for my soul at that point. And my soul was bruised at that point. I was like, yeah. that's not what I needed to do. Um, and Rob and I sat for four hours and we're basically like, let's do a place together. What's the worst that could happen? Rob was a nightclub guy. He, he had had uh, elbow room and, um, and had had catacomb and and wife and Waterloo, and he wanted to get in the restaurant business. He had his son. He was like, "I can't be get home, keep getting home at five o'clock in the morning." And so we were we made good partners, um, filled in each other's holes at that point. And we were like, "What's the worst that could happen?" Yeah, let's were, do one restaurant. What were the roles? Um, just back of the napkin. You know, it's funny. People always. This is probably the most popular question we've ever gotten. We in a lot of our stuff bleeds. <laughs> Sorry, in. no, no, no. It's a, it's a good question, but in a lot of our roles, yeah, now just bleed lot, into yeah. each other. Um, but I would say at that point, Rob was more macroeconomics, and I was more microeconomics. Okay, I was. He was more the deal, the lease construction, and I was more food cost, labor cost, yeah. micro P and L. 
And so um, he, at that point, was probably more about the deal, and I was probably more about running service. Um, but then those things kind of bled into each other, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. We When we open up a restaurant now, it's not like we talk about, well, you do this yeah, part of the right, critical path right. and I do this part. The, all those beginning things now, you know, finding the chef partner and finding the property and working on design, all those sort of stuff, we just naturally do those things together. It's it's supernatural. I think that's part of the reason the partnerships worked. Yeah. Do you remember meeting Ian for the first time? Ian was the first interview we ever had. He showed up an hour early. Ian he Goldberg at, for you, yeah. Tim. Yeah. He's a COO. He worked, <laughs> yeah. he worked at Brooks Brothers, and he wanted to get back in the restaurant business. He just was looking for a place to bartend a couple nights a week. Huh. So he showed up an hour early, and he's like, can I just do my interview now? And his interview went okay, but he didn't seem sophisticated enough at that point to bartend at that restaurant. And we said, God, what a nice kid, you know, but probably not going to be one of the bartenders. And the next day, there was a handwritten letter in the mailbox from him. And we said, you know what? God bless that kid. We're going we're gonna to hire that kid. And he moved all the way up, you know, from bartender to bar manager to general manager to director of operations to VP to COO. So over 20 years. Been with us 20 years. First person we ever hired. That was his bachelor's, master's, PhD. 100 percent. Yeah. So um, more yeah. than he wanted to learn. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Scofflaw Old Tom Gin, a tasty, versatile spirit. Created in Chicago in 2012, the product was born out of a need for a bespoke iteration of the Old Tom style, which is the slightly sweeter predecessor to London Dry. Scofflaw Old Tom Gin carries classic notes of orange peel, juniper, and coriander while balancing on a subtle floral edge thanks to the addition of osmanthus blossoms. Its elevated proof is suitable in cocktails or unadorned. Scofflaw Old Tom Gin. Complete your bar. So you're uh, chef-driven. Your concepts are Mm chef-driven. How do you, um, I guess, was there an aha moment where you were like, find the chef first and build around that? Or was that uh, something you guys learned over time? Well, originally, we would build the architecture of the the restaurant group kind of sitting at the bar across from each other. And we, we looked at a lot of different companies. Like, I'm a firm believer in if, like, you want to have a career in something, find somebody who you respect their career path. I think it's a, the, the, the easy analogy is to look at acting. Like, you know, who do you like? You know, ooh, I really like Gene Hackman. Chose great scripts wasn't afraid to be a character actor in a great movie as opposed to the lead. You know, I think you can do the same thing in hospitality as you look at people and you're like, oh, I really like the way this person's arc went. I like the way that they were really involved with design. And when we started looking at restaurant groups, most of them were built around one chef. It seemed like, seemed fragile. <laughs> seemed yeah, like mm-hmm. a lot of eggs in one basket. It seems like you also couldn't broaden your tastes and horizons. And we were like, man, what if we, what if we did around several chefs? And so... I think part of the aha moment was when Tentori came on and got Food and Wine's Best New Chefs. And then, then you know, we started working with Ryan Poley. And then we started working with Stephanie Eiser. And we started working with Paul Verant. And, and those kind of moments not only gave our company an identity, but it was also fun to collaborate with a lot of people. I don't think we talk about fun enough in our business. Yeah. Like, we talk about the reasons why we do things. Fun is part of it. Like yeah. you open up a second restaurant sometimes because you're you're chasing that high again. For sure. And it allows you to draw another picture. I had like five years ago, a good customer of ours 
came into one of our restaurants and he was like, hey, how's it going? And I knew him well enough that I could tell him how it was really going. I was like, I was mm-hmm. like, it's rough right now. Here's yeah. what's happening. And the son was drawing a picture and he looked up at me and he goes, if it's so hard, why do you keep doing it? And I was like, it's a really good question. I go, see that picture you're drawing? I was like, what if that's the only picture you could ever draw? And he goes, well, that would suck. And I was like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, I like drawing pictures. And so we choose new pictures to draw. And I was like, it's not always going to work out. If you draw enough pictures, yeah, <laughs> you're going to draw yeah. one that does not look good. Anyone who's been in this long enough has had a failure. Yeah, totally. And so, yeah, that's kind of the we, – we, once we started doing that and it started working um, – and it's risky because the, one of the things that we do is we give the chefs equity in each individual LLC. Um, and so the vetting process with that is usually pretty lengthy before we get to that point. That's a few tastings and they've sat with like everybody in the company and we've talked to everybody they ever worked with. And, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I think over. Yeah, mostly works. F- mostly works with four, 40 restaurants. Of the, or Rob and I together, 36, I think, over 20 years. And it's like, good it's clip. only been mm-hmm. like 13 executive chefs. Yeah. Wow. You're almost like a general manager at that point, you know, drafting new chefs to come under the umbrella. Yeah. And yeah. It's talent. like, well, at the beginning, it was us like trying to, you know, we'd locate somebody or try somebody's food and we would like want to talk to that person. Mm-hmm. And now it's just mostly just incoming. Like people will just say, Hey, is there any way you would do a tasting? I think we've probably done 300 tastings. Wow. Over the last 20 years. What was the years. most impressive of the last 20 years? <laughs> oh my <laughs> which gosh. Chef do you, which uh, chef you do know, you want to call out? I will, t- I will tell you that Jimmy Papadopoulos's tasting before we did Belmore, God rest his soul was ridiculous was unbelievable he got Mm. a lot of press for that oyster pie i think that's the first thing we tasted that day giuseppe tentori's tasting was out of control he was just like hey let me just go to the market and pick up a bunch of stuff and then he cooked it out of landmark yeah um there's been some really great ones and some really bad ones too (laughs) (laughs) yeah we've been through some and some you know when you're cooking in somebody's kitchen that you're not used to bad things can happen yeah. And we've had people who just, you know, came in and they just had two pieces of fish for this course and then hammered the fish. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, Kevin, outside of uh, tastings and once, you know, there are a lot of people that can cook, mm-hmm. but maybe not everybody's the ideal partner for a restaurant. What other yeah. characteristics do you look for? Like, well, Steph's all, got like star appeal, you know, per- sure. personality. Well, first of all, you got to like each other. Like, people always say, well, why have you, how have you and Rob been partners for so long? I go, well, we agree 96% of the time. So we only have to navigate the 4%. It's kind of like a marriage. If, you, if you're having to navigate 70% of every decision, it's going to get old for both people. Yeah. Know? How do you deal and with so the it's 4%? Not about, it's not just about good person, bad person. It starts a good person. Like if they're, if they're a bad humans, I think the rich has the great saying, you know, you can't make a, a good deal with a bad person. So the first thing is, is like, do we like you? Do we think we're smart? Do we, Think the same way about things. And that usually comes out if you can have a real conversation with somebody mm-hmm. for a couple hours. It's like, hey, let's really talk about it. What pisses you off in restaurants? How are, how are we going to navigate things when we do? What would piss you off about a partnership? How do you feel about the finances of the restaurant? That sort of thing. Um, and so they have to at least be mindful of financials. There has to be some sort of financial foundation underneath it. Um, 
We want them to be able to create and buy from whoever they want to buy from. Uh, we're not particular like that. You have to buy from these companies or whatever. But those kind of conversations have to come up. It's like whenever you're doing an operating agreement for something, it's, it kind of sucks because you have to talk about a lot of worst possible scenarios. Mm-hmm. You yeah. have to do that with partnerships. You have to get knee deep in the mud and say, okay, what if this happens? We've seen right. this happen before. How do you feel about Did this? Did you do that? with Rob when you started Boca or was it like you no. did it more in depth <laughs> later on? We didn't do that at all. And we had six months where we kind of, we battled it out. Like I would, I would have the lights would be higher with me and the music would be lower. And then I would be in the middle of service. And all of a sudden I would see it get really dark in there and I'd hear the music get turned up. And then I would go back and tell Ian to turn it down. <laughs> and we kind of looked like clowns because we were trying to figure out our partnership on the fly. And, and now I think that, you know, we try to do that stuff ahead of time where you're like, okay, well, you know, let's figure out this concept together. What is, what really is the concept? And so, um, and if you do that and you can talk about these bad things, most of those things, then when they come up, you've pre-rehearsed them. Yeah. Pre-rehearsal in life is really important and not just with restaurants. Because mm-hmm. if, if you, if you know it's going to happen already and you can, um, you know, change your emotional response, <laughs> Based on the fact you knew it was going to happen already. I know when I get into a meeting with this guy, every time he's going to say this and it's going to piss me off. And usually I say this, I'm not going to let that happen this time. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. going to try this. Yeah, <laughs> And so that comes with age a little bit, you know? I think we're both a little less fiery than we used to be. Yeah. Um, especially like, you know, we go back to the beginning. There was one that you shared together. Then obviously there were, you know, those perennial landmark goat all simultaneously happening yes. with Boca. So that's kind of like a phase two of sorts. And then obviously now is, you know, however many. Well, if you look at it, so. Boca opens in 03. Yeah. Landmark opened in five. Perennial opened in eight. Girl and the Goat opened in 10. So we did oh. four in seven years, um, which doesn't sound crazy. That's not breaking yeah. the pace. But then we did seven in three years. Right. after goat and that was wild that was the wildest time because the corporate office was only three of us and there was a moment where rob put his hands on my shoulders and he's like what are we doing to ourselves i mean it, it got way out of control and that was like okay we need to build infrastructure and now the corporate team is about 70 wow. with, okay. with you know so when did you build that other layer of infrastructure like what year they had to yeah it? so i would say it was 2013, 12 or 13 was when Abby came on. And Abby's whole job at that point as executive director was to start building systems and putting people into place. And so it was the slow evolution after that because, as you guys know, one restaurant, two restaurants, five, seven, nine, 17, 25, those are seven or eight different companies. Every time you get bigger, it's a different company. Oh, now we need HR. Oh, now we need in-house financial services. Now we need a CEO. Now we need to move everybody up to the C-suite. All those things that happen over time were need-based happenings. Hmm. You would see something happen. You'd be like, okay, we can't do it like that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Rob, you shouldn't be going to the banks making deposits. I shouldn't be doing the P&Ls anymore. And a lot of times we hold on to this stuff out of ego. For we're sure. like, well, this is what I do. This is part of the DNA of what I do. And so you hold on to it too tight for too long. And we did that. And that for could sure. hinder growth. Totally you're not hinders growth. On driving the business forward. And you realize there are other people that could do it better than you can. Yeah. There might be certain things, and there are. There are certain things that Rob does and certain things that I do that we both do better than anybody else. And there are a lot of stuff that we kept for way too long that other people could do way better than we could. 
how did you, do you help each other identify those things I think or you so. just trust? I think so. I, I think you, you know, awareness comes with age too. And so it's like looking at a baseball lineup. You're like, okay, well, when we do this, I hit 345. If I replace with some, if I replace myself with somebody who hits 260, it's going to hurt. Yeah. So you have to figure out. I either have to be a great attractor of talent, or I have to be a great teacher. And then what you have to be is both. You know, yeah. there are certain positions that you just have to teach. This is the way we do things, and we want you to do them this way. And and sometimes you just have to go out and find somebody who is a great chief development officer. Yeah. Who could speak to a lawyer who understands reading an operating agreement, who understands when a location is a good location or a bad location. Those are special people that you mm-hmm. have to go find. And so we've, we've done both. We've found great talent and we've had to be good teachers too. Yeah. But without having done it yourself, you wouldn't exactly know what to look for. hundred percent. Yeah. It's so good that we, we did do all these things and, you know, that we did everything from plunge toilets to, mm-hmm. to, to building, you know, the floor plan and open table. Yeah. And knowing how many people we can take every 15 minutes. I mean, the all that little pieces of information that you can only get by doing it grassroots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think the biggest game changers were in the Boca Group evolution? Um, I think that, you know, Giuseppe Tintori coming on was really big because he had a certain standard of certain things that was higher than our standard at that point. And it was stuff I didn't think of that much yet. Like what he wanted for China within the restaurants was like, oh, okay, now I understand why that's really important. Um, And just overall structure every single day. Um, And then him winning Food & Wine's Best New Chefs got us some respect that we didn't have before. We were just like a couple of kids doing neighborhood restaurants. Yeah. Um, and then obviously you do a big box office place like Girl and the Goat, and that's a game changer. You know, I remember being in New York and Savor put Best New Restaurant in America on the cover of Savor for Girl and the Goat. And I was like, well, I think things have changed a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for, and I, you know, listen, I was still, it, when my mom turned 50 years old, I said, Mom, how do you feel? I was like, do you, you know, do you feel 50? And she's like, I have the same insecurities and feelings I had when I was 18 years old. I only know I'm 50 by looking at myself in the mirror. I think it was the same thing with Restaurant Evolution. Like, you know, that happened with Girl and the Goat, but I still had the same insecurities I did when I had the six-table restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like, you know, sometimes you were like watching something that didn't feel like your own life. Like an imposter syndrome. Total imposter syndrome. Um, and so the, so the Girl and the Goat moment was a huge moment. And then when we opened those seven other restaurants, all of a sudden... You're 11 restaurants. And we started to build that infrastructure and have people in place and people doing stuff. And there was a moment around 2015 that for the first time in my life, I didn't walk dining room six nights a week. So from 92 to 2015, about 23 years, I walked to dining room six nights a week. And how and much, like, was it always a significant chunk of the night or could it just been significant like a pop chunk? Up? I mean, you worked at Perennial. I was at the front door. Yeah. I, I, don't, know, I don't know if you remember that or no, not, I but I yeah. ran the front door every night. And so at that point, I was either running the front door at Landmark, Boca, or Perennial every single night. Yeah. I would pick which restaurant I was going to go to. Um, and so it was a weird change. I was still going to restaurants, but I wasn't a part of service like I used to be. Right. Like I wasn't like, I would still probably get pre-shift somewhere and I would work a little bit for a little while and I would touch some tables. But at that point I was like not running food like I used to and like that sort of thing. So the evolution change. 
so now like what does your day-to-day look like versus you know that 20 starts a lot earlier yeah my first meeting today was i had a 7 30 wow so i was like so i had before noon i had i had four meetings um and so i have days that are stacked with like 14 meetings all day long um it's a lot because there's there's a lot of development that's going on there's construction meetings there's financial meetings there's legal meetings um and i can't go to all of them so it's like you know um bob seeger says in uh against the wind at the end he's like he's like my my life's different now it's a lot of what to leave in and what to leave out <laughs> and so it's it tasteful edits i would mm. say because there's more things to do every single day that i could possibly do so i look at my schedule and i'm like okay sometimes they're jammed in there on the calendar on top of each other. Yeah. And I have to say, which, you know, which one am I going to choose between these meetings? And it's the ones where I can make impact. <clears throat> when you get a bigger company, there's a lot of people who will send you emails and CC you on them because they want to show you how hard they're working. And I try <laughs> to tell my people all the time, I was like, I already believe that you're working <laughs> yeah, hard. Please don't and I also me. believe in your talent. So please... <laughs> Only CC me <laughs> when you think I can impact the meeting. Yeah, I don't need to, you. Don't need to show me that you're kicking ass. I believe that you're kicking ass. Yeah. Um, so that's what I try to do. I try to go to the places that need me, and you know, I um, I opened up a private club called Beyond, um, which is a totally separate company, and you know, we just we just hit a thousand members there, wow. and it's it's gotten very busy, and so that thing's more taxing than I thought it would be too. So there's also the balance of getting that in there as well. One of the questions I was going to ask uh, is like, how do you juggle the things within Boca group with the things outside of Boca group? Yeah. So, so I do, I do some speaking. I got a book deal. I have a book coming out in January, 2025. Um, Nice. Any details there? um, I have a very strange family backstory. That okay. I won't go into today, but it'll come out in the book. And, okay, you're a good um, writer. I read your well, Esquire thanks. piece early on, thanks. and uh, and I'm like, wow, he good writer. Did that? Oh. Uh, I mean, that's a very touching piece too. And I, I looked at the date on it because I remember reading it at the time, and I'm and thinking like, man, this uh, COVID thing. We'll see what happens. But that was it was in April. It was the which day is like, my mom died. The day before we shut down restaurants. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I just went home one night and wrote a piece about my mom, and and I'd end up sending it to. Katie Darnaby, who's my publicist, but also my friend. And she's like, hey, do you mind if I send this off to Sasquire? And they, they ended up printing it. But I'd always kind of written a little bit over my life. And, the, you know, part of Dave Eggers' influence. I wrote for the Daily yeah. Illini a little bit when I went to Illinois. Um, and I just, I really wanted to to write a book at some point. Um, and this book is, it's part family story, part the restaurant story. Um, I've been working on it for three years. so. Wow turn it in July of next year coming wow. out on Abrams. Um, it's called the bottomless cup. Okay, cool. Um, so it's, uh, I think, it'll, I think it'll be, hopefully it'll be interesting to people. Yeah. It sounds like lots it will of, be. lots of stories. And then you've got the Boca cookbook coming out. Boca cookbook just came out as mm-hmm. well. So yeah, there's a lot of things that can, um, for an ADD guy like me that can <laughs> steal my steal yeah. my uh, attention, and so I think I'm very good at the very beginning of each day creating the architecture of what a day looks like, um, and prioritizing where I need to go and where I need to be. Um, and I think Rob is is good like that as well. Um, and so, and at this point in my life, 
putting some wellness into my life every single day so I don't kind of lose my mind. Yeah. So, you know, my mom was a manic depressive. Um, I've been a manic depressive since I was very, very young. Um, It's the best it's ever been right now. And, but I, I got there with intention. Yeah. Um, you know, part of that was uh, doing, I, it took me like 49 years to go to a therapist. <laughs> um, too long. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I manage that a lot better now. But part of that is like looking at my day too and like leaving gaps in there that I can, um, you know, balance uh, cortisol producing events with, moments that eject me with dopamine. Um, (laughs) And so sometimes that's a yoga mat. Sometimes that's just like time by myself. Yeah. Has Um, your personal influence with, uh, or personal experience with mental health and physical health, did that kind of guide the direction of the health club? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like I started doing a lot of things. um, It's probably 12 years ago where I like really got into fitness. And um, if there was something that, you know, the Chinese have been doing for 5,000 years, I was going to try it. <laughs> and I, I, I basically went to like 10 or 11 different places that all exist within beyond. I had an acupuncturist and a private yoga instructor and a trainer. And I did all these things, um, trying to like manage that ones and twos and nines and tens that I had with my moods. Um, and really what ended up helping with that was like a little bit of medication and some therapy and keeping that balance up and being healthier. And I mostly stopped drinking and all those things really, really helped. But the, yeah, the impetus for beyond was looking at all those things and like, wow, could all those things exist inside one place? Beyond has six doctors, um, uh, inside that space, uh, full-time internist, psychiatrist, Ayurvedic medicine, naturopath, chiropractor. Um, so, uh, we have life coaches within there. There's fitness. There's a listening room with 2,000 records in it. It's all these things that um, are real wellness. Yeah, not, it's a holistic approach. It is. It's all connected. It's all connected. And, you know, Dr. Chinese Medicine that we have there, you know, we had a guy who went in there, had numbness in his right leg, saw the Dr. Chinese Medicine. She's this crazy intuitive healer. And she said, you know what? I think you should, I don't want to alarm you, but go get a blood panel from the internist. Got a blood panel from the internist, irregularities, lesion on his kidney. They removed 50% of his kidney two weeks later, and he could have been dead in six months. Wow. So this little team working together (laughs) there, there are people that come in that are really damaged that are just like, you know what? Give me the works. I want a trainer. I want the psychiatrist. I want the doctor Chinese medicine. Um, It's not... It's not that easy in this world sometimes to find balance and wellness, especially in our businesses. For sure. Um, and, yeah, I think we just don't have a good approach to it in America. I got, I, I was just going over the new uh, the health insurance options for next year for stock. And um, I'm like, why, why is it separate insurance for your teeth and your eyes? It's your body. What's, what's the deal? Why, why do we have to opt in for, for special? It's just the whole thing. Needs needs an audit. Oh, it's been fucked up for such a long yeah, time, it's and, and the, the stigma with mental health and seeing someone. I even like, you know, I did all those things, but I had my own personal stigma with um, using any type of medication. Yeah, I was I, like, no, 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 I'm not yeah. doing any of that shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and my my therapist was like, what What are you doing, man? You do, you're doing all the stuff that's really, really hard and you're throwing the kitchen sink at it. Why won't you even try it? There's some stuff out there that just works for people. And she was hundred percent right. 
Mm-hmm. She's yeah. like, try this. It just kind of gets rid of the irrational anxiety. And I'm like, do you promise? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the first, like, like after I bound out for like three weeks, I was like, you stupid son of a bitch. Yeah. You could have had this go away such a long time ago. And I was just too stubborn about it. So I. How did know, that manifest? Self doubt? You know, it was a lot of things. Like, I remember at Indigo Wine Bar in the late 1980s or 1990s getting a notice from the IRS that scared me so bad all weekend that I could hardly take it. And it turns out the only thing it was. Was like, I started the LLC. We didn't open for six months. We didn't file zero returns, and they were just checking on something. It was completely innocuous, and I worried for like three straight days that it was something that was going to like shut down everything. Yeah, and so that fear drove me a lot of times. It probably drove my ambition, but it sure didn't make me happier. No, <laughs> and that I could have found a balance between those two things. Um, I went to this really groovy place called the Hoffman Process, which is like this really difficult psychological boot camp. And one of the girls, and they basically figure out all your patterns and where they came from. And this girl walked up to me and, and she was like, you seem like you might be successful. She's like, she's like, don't you think these bad patterns are part of the reasons we are successful? And I'm like, yeah, but they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. I think you can I think you can be mentally healthy and still be ambitious if you want to. Yeah, at what point is it not serving you anymore? Yeah, yeah totally. that's a tough balance yeah. to strike to figure out with like the drive to keep going, to keep doing more stuff, like the feeling that you're not doing enough. Sounds like that's what they do at this Well, didn't you, right? I'm sure you guys had those moments too, right? For sure, I yeah. mean like where you're like what what am I doing? I just left here at four o'clock in the morning and it's 8 a.m. and isn't there a better way? Yeah. I, yeah. Hopefully we're working toward that now. But sometimes we convince ourselves that the pain is the only way to get there. If we're not feeling the pain, we're not really working hard enough. Yeah, I think that's fair. That is, that is, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We have a lot of guilt in our business. Like, especially in the beginnings where we're like, if you're not there, you know, like when I think about the amount of weddings I didn't go to. So I was like, well, I got to work on Saturday night. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty bummed that I missed a couple of my really close friends' weddings. Because yeah. yeah. I felt like I had to be to there. To make the sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. totally. I, yeah, I had a Naha moment a couple months ago where I was like, I looked at my calendar. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm like, I haven't, I haven't hit half of the amount of like vacation time we give to our employees. Like, that's not why I started a business was to work this much. But, you know, you you get caught up in it and it just happens. Children have a way of resetting that for you. Yeah, I don't have kids. I I don't have that excuse yet. (laughs) Do you have have kids? Yeah, yeah, two kids. Yeah, Yeah, how old? Uh, Six and three. Congrats. Thanks, man. I have a 20-year-old, a 15-year-old, and a 10-year-old. So, yeah, they'll reset you all the time. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. for sure. (laughs) Do you want to keep doing all this, you know, to have the restaurant group to keep opening more and more stuff. You know, we talked to Terry and he kind of vaguely alluded to one day, maybe not doing it. Yeah, he doesn't have the hunger he had when he was younger. We talked about Donnie. He still has the long hair though. (laughs) (laughs) Terry's hair looks beautiful. (laughs) We talked Um, about Donnie being someone who would just like do it infinitely. So I'm really close with Donnie. We're very close friends. And, um, 
and, and yeah, listen, I mean, Donnie's, you know, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to date Donnie, but he's older than me, Yeah, you know? And so I, I look at that sometimes. I'm like, am I going to be on the dining room floor that much? And when I'm, when I'm Donnie saying, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I probably not. I don't know. I don't see as far in front of my face as I used to. Um, I used to have to have stuff sitting on the horizon all the time to keep me adrenalized. I don't as much anymore. Um, and so if it serves me, I'll do it. Boca Group's bigger, obviously, than me and Rob at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's like, there's a, there's a bunch of people in there that are that are, that are partners and have, have have made this part of their lives and their occupation. And, and Boca Group will go on. How how much I do of that every single week? It'll, I'm sure that'll evolve and change. But yeah. I like creating stuff. Rob likes creating things. So that that'll I think that will never go away. Right. Um, how much you give away of the stuff on the critical path. Like I always say there's, we have 783 things on our critical path <laughs> and like how many of the ones that do you do on, of the 783? Yeah. Like I'm not sourcing the pashminas anymore, you know, yeah. but like I was in 2005. So like I do maybe 40 of the 783 now. Right. And so that number might get, might get even smaller. Who knows? And of all the things that you, you have accomplished both personally and within the group, are there still things out there? I mean, obviously a book is coming. Book's really important to me. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a super personal book. Um, and I'm just basically just putting it all out there. It's a really, really honest book. Like, you know, my, one of my best friends is Will Gadara, And when he was writing Unreasonable Hospitality, I, I was one of the first two people to read it. And I remember reading it and he, he had this month before he turned it into copy editor and you have to decide within that month, this is what I'm putting out into the universe and here it goes. And I'm, and I have that scheduled already that sometime around summer of next year, I'm going to have this month to sit with it and say, Ooh, do I really want to put that story in there? <laughs> yeah. It's a really honest book. You will, know? You, will you send it off to Will? I will. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm he's almost a, done with his book. Yeah. He's already, he's read everything I've turned in so oh, far. Cool. So I've, I've finished about eight chapters and he's read everything. That's cool. see, we, that's my favorite person to brainstorm with in the, in the world. So we, we talk every couple of days. Yeah. Um, he's, a, he's a great guy and, and a great writer. It's a great, and it's a great book. We've done a lot of speaking gigs together. So we like, we have both have stories that we've told a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's fun to bounce off each other with the stories. Um, sure. On the topic of creation, um, are you very involved with the design as well. I, we've worked, you know, just doing uniforms. We work around uh, Africo Designs. I know it's like a favorite uh, design firm of yours. How did you get hooked up with them and how do you guys work together? Yeah, so Africo, um, we went to New York once and this was probably early 09 and we kept walking into places and we were like, who designed this restaurant? And they'd be like, Africo. And I think it happened like three or four times. <laughs> and we were sitting in public, which they also owned and ran. They were like, God, these guys are so good. We should figure out how to get a hold of them. We went back to Chicago and we're like, let's just call them. Let's see what happens. So we call Africo and we're like, hey, we're doing a restaurant here in Chicago called Girl and the Goat. Is there any way you guys would come look at it and maybe design it? And they're like, well, I don't really work that way. You know, we do a finite amount of projects in the U.S. every year. And if you want to come and talk to us about it and you know, kind of pitch us on it. It was kind of this reverse. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, whoa, that's awesome. Um, that's really great when you get to that point. And so we went and we pitched it to him. And it was that we were the last meeting of the day. And they were like, do you guys want to go to dinner with us? And we went to dinner with them. We all just headed off. We had a great time. They're like, you know what? 
let's do it. And we got a proposal in the mail and we choked on it. It was, <laughs> I think it was 250 grand. And that was like, we were, the whole project was like 1.3. Yeah. <laughs> and we're like, um, we're really embarrassed, <laughs> but we can't afford you guys. And so Karen Harold it did an amazing job in Design Girl on the Go. We've done as many deals with her and Studio OK as we've done with Avrico. Right. Um, and she hadn't done a lot in Chicago at that point, so she did it for a lot less expensive and did a beautiful job, did an incredible job. I'm so glad it happened that way. But a few years later, we were like, okay, now we can afford these guys. Let's let's do Momotaro. Um, and we did Momotaro and Swift with them at the same time. But when we go into those processes, we usually have a lot of ideas already. Momotar, we'd found that building and we'd already decided to spend like, let's have the downstairs be the Izakaya. Let's maybe like, you know, take the ceiling out here so we can get some. So we come in with like pictures and tear outs and some ideas of where we want the bar at and where we want the kitchen at and what do we want it to look like. And so, yeah, we're not passive guys that say, hey, design this project. Yeah, right. <laughs> we, we like being at the table and, and going deep on, yeah. on the design. I remember doing a walkthrough with you at Momotaro before opening, and uh, you showed me where you and Rob had drawn the lines the on the marks, wall. Yeah. yeah, are there any other Easter eggs in your restaurants like that? Um, Avrico used to do Easter eggs in all the restaurants. There was a hidden picture of Rob and I in every single place, <laughs> and they, it still exists. Yeah. <laughs> the funniest one is at Swift and Sons. There's like this beautiful painting on the bar, and there's like a man walking with a cow through the fields, and that's me. And there's like a <laughs> farmer on the other side, and it's Rob. There's like seven restaurants where we're, our pictures are hidden. In oh, the I didn't know that. That's pretty funny. So those are pretty That'd be a fun. Great I've seen the GT picture. <laughs> Try to Prime. find them all. You have. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Classic. But like if you go into like Swift Tavern across from Wrigley, there's a bunch of Cubs players from like the very first team, you know, in like the late 1800s. And like two of the guys are Rob and I in the old uniforms. <laughs> and it's like, it's pretty funny. Uh, you've thrown out a first pitch. I remember that I did. story. I remember you showed me the commentary that uh, was dubbed over I it too. did. Yeah, Theo and Jed <laughs> got the Comcast guys to rip on me. You um, must be left-handed because nobody would throw that way right-handed. <laughs> um, so yeah. I'd, I'd imagine at this point a lot of opportunities come your way. Um, what what do you look for now that you've you have a proven track record? What are things that you that would entice you at this point? I think you know soulfulness is the is the is the first thing. Something that feels like you know that feels like us. That feels like we can do something interesting, um, and also maybe an interesting city. Yeah, you know, we're doing something in other cities, and sometimes you fly somewhere and you get a feel for it, and sometimes you just don't. Yeah. Um, when you go check out a city, what's um, do you get tips on places to check out? What's kind of your travel itinerary yeah, driven by? We kind of land and we're like, okay, here's the eight places we're going to go eat at. And we usually don't go on a weekend. We usually go on a weekday because mm-hmm. we want to see. We're like, we're assuming already places are busy on Friday and Saturday right, night. Let's yeah. see what they do on like a Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, and then we, you know, I'd say the basic structure is someplace to eat, someplace to drink, someplace that's weird. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> let's, let's get, let's figure out what the city's all about. And then we have a lot of conversations with people. You know, we really mix it up with servers and stuff like that. Like, what's it like here? Where else have you worked? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you like living here? What's the hospitality community like? Um, and as you guys know, there's already a lot of intel that's out there in our world For on sure. cities. Yeah. Too much. Way too yeah, much. the best tips come from hospitality yeah. people. Like Shane they and I do, were yeah. in Palm Springs last week, and we're not 
you know, we're not looking up places to go on TripAdvisor. We're talking to the bartenders. Where do you hang out? What are the places you eat? You yeah, know? totally. Are there any deals that you've walked away from that you regret? That you're willing to talk I, about? I, <laughs> yeah. um, I would say there's definitely like you you were offered this deal and you didn't take it. And it's like the guy being offered like the lead in Titanic and be like, the Titanic? Everybody <laughs> dies in the end. Yeah. Thing, I'm not taking that. Yeah. Give it to that Leo kid. You know, I mean, we I, we've definitely had some like that. Like, I mean, you know. I mean, Restoration Hardware talked to us yeah. in the early mm. going. Pre-soda, you know, yeah. yeah, and you know about doing that, and we're like, couldn't get our brains wrapped around that one. Yeah, you know, what do yeah. you mean? No alcohol, and we got to be closed by nine o'clock, and they're yeah. inside the stores. <laughs> yeah, that is confusing. <laughs> it's like that's a hey. That's never the mark our words. <laughs> yeah. Never going to work. Um, yeah, we definitely have. We definitely have quite a few of those that like. There's no way you could do all those things anyway. Yeah. Is there? You no. Know? Mm-hmm. Like, I remember we ran into Missy Robbins at at uh, the Beard Awards, and she was like, hey, want to come to New York and do an Italian restaurant with me? And we're like, we can't do that. You know, it's like, there's, at that point, it was like, who's moving to New York, and how's that going to work? And like, yeah. that would have been a good one to take. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I think she did just fine with Sean Feeney, who's a great partner and restaurant tour friend of hers. But like, but sometimes there are these moments where it could have been easy to say no, that you say yes. And they just work out when we did laser wolf in New York um, and, and Kafar and Jaffa with Michael Solomonoff. That was one of those that just kind of happened. Yeah. You know, we forged a friendship with Michael um, over the years and started talking to him more during the pandemic and Hoxton wanted us to take over New York. And it was just one of those things where we just all happened to be talking on the phone at the same time. We're like, do you want to do a restaurant in New York together? Yeah. You know, sometimes you just ask yourself, questions that might seem outrageous or dumb or stupid but they seem interesting and they turn into something great and laser wolf's just been that's just been a fucking remarkable experience michael's and steven are great to work with we forged a great partnership um and it just became like one of these great places to go eat it's got a killer view of new york and it's just been nothing but joy it's great how did uh, Hoxton Chicago come about? Was it where they come to you and they're like, would you handle F and B? And you're like, let me check my roster. You know, Sharan, uh, who's the owner of Hoxton at the time only had Hoxton's in Europe. Yeah. And, I say it's Shoreditch yeah. before I even knew what it was. Yeah. And uh, it was great. Yeah. So we, we went there and checked all that out, but um, through a mutual a friend through Jeff Shapek, the developer, he introduced us, we talked and they were said, Hey, we're looking to do Chicago and, before this, we've done all of our food and all our partnerships with Sohaus. They'd done it with Nick Jones. And they're like, we're looking to do Chicago, but we think we might use somebody else. And we had this great conversation. And that one we did from like the ground up. You yeah. know, that was that was Jeff's dirt, built it from scratch. Avrico designed everything. Um, there, you know, and, and we kind of talked. We, were, we had the ability on that one to really talk about how that first floor worked and operated. And we're like, what if we prioritized F and B over the check-in to the point where you can't even see the check-in? <laughs> yeah, it is in. off to the side. And and so we've kind of like built that whole thing together. And sometimes things just happen, as you guys know. I mean, like like you've I've had ones before. I was like, this is a no miss. This is going to be so great. And then it's a disaster. And that was one of those where we're like, hmm, how's this going to work? Like people are just going to come in here and they're just going to work. You know, do we? Do we make, is there a minimum of tables? And we're like, no, let's just let, 
whoever wants to come in and they want to work all day and sit in a spot and not order anything, whatever. Eventually they'll order something. <laughs> and it became like this, almost like so off without the membership. Yeah, I walk my dogs by there every day. It's packed. It's packed. We kind of built this. It became ritualistic for people to go in there, eat breakfast, have coffee, have meetings, work. And now there's just this synergy, and especially at night, that combination of the bar at Sierra and Lazy Bird and Cabra, people will go in and do all three in one night. And sometimes it just happens. Yeah, I've done a great one, two, Lazy Bird up to Cabra. <laughs> Super sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Highly recommend it. And we hadn't done a bar bar in a long time. Yeah. And yeah, we opened with Lee, right? Lee Zaremba. Lee Zaremba, yeah. who's a real in town, is now. now killing it in Los Angeles. Yeah. We had a ball together with Lee. and Yeah, it's crazy. Um, all right, Tim, should we hit him with the gratuity round? Let's hit Kevin with the gratuity round. So there's kind of like a lightning round of questions <laughs> oh. coming your way. This is like this is like Family Feud, like the <laughs> like pretty much. <laughs> This episode of Joiners is brought to you by Stock Manufacturing, makers of fine hospitality workwear. You obsess over the details in your space, so why stop at your staff's uniforms? Stock has something for every aesthetic. From fine dining to a corner cafe, they've got you covered. Choose from in-stock ready-to-wear options or design the perfect custom uniform for your team. For more information, visit stockmfgco.com. All right. What is your death row meal? Well, I think I eat 70% of my meals are Japanese. Wow. So I would say it w- it's going to start with raw fish. Yeah. Like itoko, <laughs> some momotaro. Shishimi, some sashimi, some nigiris. Going. Yeah. Your um, office definitely, is momotaro. It's no mistake. It's, there's, yeah. no mis- there's no mistake <laughs> there. Um, but um, my favorite dessert in the whole world is... Peach pie or peach cobbler, hot olive oil. That's a great one. Wow. Very decisive. Yeah. Good answer. Uh, all right. What is your favorite hidden gem restaurant? Doesn't have to be in Chicago. Favorite hidden gem restaurant is, um, it'll be hidden. It'll be a hidden gem for people that live in this neck of the woods. There's a little restaurant in the middle of nowhere in Grayton Beach, Florida called the Red Bar. And it's um, my first two restaurants were in Seaside, Florida, on this little road called 30A. And the Red Bar has become this little institution down there. It's in the middle of nowhere, great in beach. It's so beautiful. The jazz band for years was awesome. led by yeah. this guy named Jabbo, who was James Brown's drummer. They have incredible music in there. It is a chalkboard menu that has six things on it. Um, Sounds perfect. And the owner is a six foot six Belgian named Oliver Pettit. One of my best friends. Um, He's and, not kidding. Black and grouper, daily fish, shrimp yep. crawfish, baked eggplant, pan chicken, and manicotti. <laughs> Crab cakes. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Do a few things and do them, do them right. Uh, all right. Next question here. What is your favorite fast food? Do you eat fast food? <laughs> I do <laughs> occasionally eat the there fast we go. food. We're just with the kids. And I've, I'm, first of all, I'm a veteran. I worked at both Hardee's and I worked at, and I worked at Wendy's. Hardy's, a.k.a. Um, Carl's Jr. for me on the West Coast. Oh, there That's you right. go. Um, this is probably one you haven't had on here before, and people might giggle, but listen, 
I really do like an Arby's big roast beef sandwich. <laughs> yeah, no, no it's, it's, it's like the five for five ninety five. It has. Um, I do <laughs> like the meats, and um, <laughs> they got them. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Um, my kids make fun of me, but occasionally there is a big roast beef and curly fry order. I don't do it very often. Yeah, yeah the curly but, fries are amazing. It is a guilty pleasure, though. But uh, do you go horsey sauce and Arby sauce on there? Oh, first, of course I do. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not a moron. <laughs> <laughs> they do, they did the, they've done those sauces for a long time. Arby's was ahead of its time. Oh, yeah. Like just having all Interesting the sauces. Interesting sauces. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't have to tell you, but Arby's, for the listener, is stands for roast beef. Yeah, Arby. That's right. That's right. Yeah. All right. What's your least favorite food? Oh my, this is an interesting question because I don't, um, I, th- I think it probably would come down to things that are overwrought and heavy. Like I don't like a lot of dairy and cream and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So I don't eat a lot of junk food, processed food. Um, you know, except I'm, I'm for lucky, gummy bears. except for Haribo gummy bears. It's still, <laughs> there's still, I have, there is a bag of Haribo gummy bears in my house right now. They're so but good. I don't like stuff at this point that's like, over cheesed or over sauced or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. Real quick on that topic, I assume you have dietitians at the club. We do. Beyond what uh, what things when you started with a dietitian were they like these are the things you want to avoid? Well, I think it was more about deciding what things should I avoid based on my own personal right. makeup. So I wore a glucose monitor, and I remember for the first time being able to connect my sleep to the foods that make my glucose level rise. Hmm. And so things that really affected me were, were soy and bananas after a certain time Hmm. of the night. And I I found out, well, my, you know, my glucose level was like a high sixties. I'd sleep like a baby when it was like 110, I'd sleep terrible. Yeah. So you, yeah. So if I want to have a terrible sleep, go have, (laughs) go have three margaritas and then eat some late night sushi with soy sauce all over it. And I'm going to have a terrible night's sleep. So I started to figure out what were the the foods that affected me and, and the the worst. Yeah. Uh, All right. Favorite cocktail. I, I like any kind of mezcal tequila driven cocktail. Uh, like a shaken, like refreshing or stirred. Refreshing. Okay. Yeah, cool. but I can even do like Reposado rocks, one ice cube, a couple of limes. All right, cool. Um, you know, it's the only spirit that's a stimulant. Yeah. <laughs> and so if I, if I, like, I don't drink that much anymore, but if I'm going to, I like Reposado rocks is a good one. Gives right. you a little, gives you a little bump for the night too. <laughs> yeah. All right. What's one thing that's always in your fridge at home? Almond milk. I, d- yeah. I start my day every day with uh, two scoops of protein powder, a little bit of creatine and almond milk. Um, and I, I, a lot of times will do sometimes twice in a day after I get a workout. So that's kind of like my stay young. Is this a pre-workout? I do it right when I wake up in the morning and then I'll do one. With uh, nothing right in it beyond that stuff? Just What's the that? protein, creatine and almond milk. Cachava, plant-based protein powder, li- uh, two scoops of that protein powder or, or sorry creatine and almond milk as soon as i wake up wow and i'll do it um and i'll then if i get a workout later which like i'm like a six day a week workout guy uh then after that workout i'll do the same thing yeah danny's writing all this down that's right <laughs> gotta keep track all right what is uh your go-to host gift you're going to someone's house what are you bringing with 
You know, I, I've changed, you know, before I had no time. I was a fucking restaurant tour working all the time. I had no time. And so you're like grabbing. But we, we get, as gifts, great booze all the time. Yeah, so yeah. I used to bring great bottles of wine and great bottles of, of, of spirits to parties. Now I think about it a little more. You know, one of the things uh, that the Welcome Conference taught me um, before Donnie and I became partners into the Chicago version, we were both speakers in New York. And the best part of that ceremony is the gift giving ceremony. And like the first time when I spoke, um, they bring everybody around the couch and they said, hey, this is actually the best part of the weekend. We spent six months buying you the perfect gift. And they go, Kevin, we're going to start with you. They go, Kevin, we, we, we ran some dead ends with you. We called your mom. We called your we called your, you know, your sister. We talked to Rob <laughs> and they go, but then we heard your speech and you mentioned Gene Hackman in your speech. And they said, and what I said to you, is Gene Hackman mean anything to you? I go, yeah, he's my favorite actor of all time. They go, well, Kevin, we called Gene Hackman. And we told him the story you told about him in your speech. And he acknowledged that story happened, wanted to know the context for you. And so he, he wanted to do something nice for you. So he went to his memorabilia room. He grabbed the poster of the movie from the premiere that uh, that you talked about, and he wrote you a message on the on the poster. Wow! And we had it, and we had a museum framed. And I'm like, I'm a fucking terrible gift giver. <laughs> <laughs> I need to, I need to, I need to step it up a little bit. Oh, that is unreasonable hospitality. Um, yeah. So, wow. I the I'll give you an example. Like the That's last cool. uh, party I threw, last holiday party I threw, I came up, I wrote a riddle. And um, the riddle led everybody to a buried treasure in Chicago. I bought a rare coin. I buried it in Chicago. And everybody at the party got this as their gift. They got to take a picture of the riddle. And I was like, this is a good way for you to go out with your kids or your wife or whoever. And go see Chicago and see if you can find this treasure. That's cool. Was it a single destination or did it lead it was all a over single, the place? It was a, it, no, no. It led you all over the place. Yeah. And so it was... Uh, it took somebody like four or five hours the next day, and they found the treasure. Wow! Can you say who found it? Do you remember? Uh, Ari Bendersky found the Ari, treasure. <laughs> future <laughs> guest of the pod. Yeah, we'll right. how he cracked. <laughs> there the you go. He cracked the code. It you wasn't he easy. It? He didn't sleep that night. He was <laughs> plotting it out. It was. I think he got. They woke up early and they were at it. Wow. And there was a lot of people sending me messages, and they'd show me a picture of where they were, and I'm like. Dude, I'm 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 sorry that you're in Hyde Park right now, but you are way <laughs> off. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing in Skokie, but I'm glad that I'm. You've had a fun afternoon. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Uh, all right, favorite band or musician? Wow, that's so hard <laughs> for me. I'm a huge music person. Um, uh, I'll I'll get it down to a few. Okay. Um, I really love Patty Griffin. Um, if you've not listened to it, listen to Living with Ghosts from the whole that whole album. It's incredible. Um, Van Morrison um, have that whole collection. Favorite on Van vinyl. album? Astral Weeks, probably. Yeah, Got to be. It's a great one. Um, I saw him live at Jazz Fest. Really? How was, how was how he live? Ago? I've never seen him. Unbelievable. And really? I think with him. How long you can he can be unbelievable or he yeah, can be terrible? I've heard that. Well, I remember that's him in the like last twenty five years ago. All right, so that was kind of oh, so yeah, twenty five years ago. He was a younger just, man. It just blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. um, and you know, I love Tom Waits. You know, I, I um, Solid all great choices, answers. Yeah, great band. Uh, the lead singer of the Pogues just passed away. Right? Oh, really? Mm. Yeah, great band. 
Loved. I was a huge REM fan when I was in college. I just listened to a Michael Stipe interview. He was yeah, on uh, Smartless. Smartless. Yeah, I listened. Yeah. As He's well. an interesting dude. Um, I I have vinyl everywhere in my life. My office, my house. Um, we have a listening room beyond. I have a jet massive vinyl collection, and I jump from person to person. You know, yeah. I'm I'm constantly into somebody new. That's great. Here's a good ad hoc question. What's your most coveted vinyl? If you had to pick one record. Man, oh man. Most coveted vinyl. Like as far as like something that's worth something. Like I have I guess if you had to hunt. You know, for I have or... like you know, I have an I have an original British stamped Beatles White album that's in mint. Wow. That's kind of fun. I have this like live rare Billy Holiday um vinyl. And it I was is on like, display in your home. Yeah. I like in a safe um, somewhere. I have, you know, <laughs> Like I always thought the Buckingham Knicks album was really cool, and I actually have, I made that album into a piece of art that's on the wall of my house. Were they um, Buckingham? So they were that... in a band on Polydor before they joined right. Fleetwood Mac. Because I remember they're uh, naked on the cover. Okay, because Lindsay was asked to join the band. He's like, "Could I bring my girlfriend?" Correct. And that's what that was uh, a bad. Well, an interesting. It, decision. It Good was, for us. Yeah, for but, listeners. well, he said, "Yeah, well, <laughs> great for listeners." Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like. Um, yeah, they had that one record out, and, and the, the members of Fleetwood Mac were big fans of that record. Yeah, one of my favorites as well. Uh, all right, maybe equally difficult for you, favorite movie, which, which Hackman role? Man, <laughs> oh man, this is like, <laughs> I, mean, I do, I actually... Bombs is a great Hackman role. Tenenbaums is a... It's my favorite movie. It's an probably. incredible yeah. movie. I have a top 50 albums of all time list that I'm happy to share with both of you guys. It is on my I phone in it. my notes section. All right, cool. Um, and like, you know, I think genre has a lot to do to play with that. Like I just was watching, you know, the verdict the other night yeah. and I, I love Paul Newman so much too. And that's on my top 50 list of all time. Mm. Um, I think Tootsie's the perfect comedy. Yeah. Mm. Dustin Hoff. Yeah. It's an, if you haven't revisited that lately, it's, it's an incredible movie on freaking so many levels and. I'm even even to the point yeah, even to the point where you know Sidney Pollack who directed it is in the movie, and Sidney ended up being a really great actor mm-hmm. and acted more towards the end of his life. And the scene with Dustin and him in the Russian tea room is is incredible. I'm surprised um, Wes Anderson didn't work with Gene Hackman again, right? That, that was yeah, Gene Hackman was like he didn't do much acting but after but that. He's also pretty tough he's pretty to tough from what yeah. i understand him william hurt supposedly really tough william yeah. hurt also in one of my favorite movies of all time broadcast news yeah um the conversation i love that movie with gene yeah I, there's so many gene movies that could make the list you know i also love documentaries you know man on wire might be the best uh, documentary so ever made yeah that's great um that's uh, i i love film so much Have i just seen- watched a great film that is called dreaming wild it's with Casey Affleck, and it's about two kids who made an album in the late 1970s living in the middle of nowhere. And I saw the trailer. They hadn't heard much music at that point to, to base their own music on. They cut a record, and it was really sad. Their dad had like mortgaged part of the farm to pay for the record in a recording studio, and, and it didn't go well. And they, Even their friends kind of made fun of them for the record, and a, a label guy... 25 years later finds the record in a record store and thinks it's brilliant and re-releases it. It's a beautiful, uh-huh. sad story. Um, and no, yeah. really, really touched me. So have you right. seen the source family? 
It's about a cult in LA. This guy, no. he was a restaurateur who like started, he was at the start of the health food trend in LA. He had the Source restaurant and uh, I think he had a couple other restaurants. Killed a guy with his bare hands. Investors kind of push him out of the business and he starts this cult. And push him out of the business just for killing somebody. <laughs> Jeez, that seems a little. That seems a little harsh. He had a bad. He had a bad operating agreement. <laughs> different times, you know. But it's interesting to watch the, the arc of this cult yeah. grow in LA. They end up in Hawaii. Yeah. I won't spoil it. You got to watch the Source Family. It is. It's really good. Wow. I think in the old days, you just would. Be, you killed somebody at a bar. You just bury them underneath the bar. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. I'm sure, there's a few underneath Lotties. I mean, <laughs> gotta be, gotta be. All right, and then our last question: If yes. you weren't doing this, not this podcast, but your career, what would you be doing? I mean, you know, I I always wanted to be a writer. I mean, that was that was, that was like my second. That was like my second thing. Um, oh, behind uh doing restaurants was like but they both seemed really hard Mm -hmm. and they both seemed really risky and i think that restaurants seemed just like a little bit less risky and so that's why i went with that but like you know doing the books kind of fulfilling of a dream a little bit yeah that's awesome Getting, getting to do that it's a much quieter existence i think you can run out of being extroverted you yeah, know I, agree. A, I extroverted introverted is is um you know wrongly labeled sometimes it's where you get your energy from not if you're good at it or yeah not. It's, if it's draining or gives you energy yeah. yeah and so at a certain point it was it was mu- it was much more draining on me i think a lot of people always knew it was like oh you love being out and doing all this stuff and like i stopped i started getting my energy more from being by myself than i did from yeah. being out I still like it. I still Mm -hmm. have nights when I'm like, ooh, what a great night to go out and do that. But I couldn't do it six nights a week anymore. Yeah, for sure. It makes you choosier about what you participate in. Right. I feel like when I push myself to go out and to do it, to interface with people, I'm always glad that I did after the fact. But it takes like a little bit of hyping to get to that point where I'm physically entering and touching tables. I get more energy from writing now than I think I do being out and talking to people. Yeah. Um, and f- finding space by myself. I've got one supplemental ad hoc question. Go for it. What was the most memorable meal you've eaten? The most memorable meal I ever had was, um, I think memorable meals have so much more to do with hospitality than it does with food. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> because like when people, you ask people, where's the best crawfish etouffee you ever had? Mm-hmm. They're going to say New Orleans. Because they were in New Orleans, and New Orleans itself makes the food taste better. Yeah, because of the hospitality and the setting and all that stuff. Um, when when my mom passed away, the night afterwards um, was the last night restaurants were open, and we weren't going to be able to have a funeral. And so my restaurant in Springfield um, was filled with my mom's art. When I did that restaurant, um, I you know I had like I had seventy grand to open that restaurant on. And I went to my mom and I go, mom, I love this artist in New Orleans named George Rodrigue. Here's one of his blue dogs. I was like, see if you can paint it. She painted one and there's no way you could tell the difference between Rodrigue's and my mom's. She was a really good artist. And I was like, mom, great. I need 17 of them. (laughs) So she painted 17 blue dogs of various sizes inside this restaurant. And so that next night I said, hey, why don't we go to Indigo? We can't have a funeral. We'll treat this as the funeral. And we'll have this dinner. We'll break bread inside the old restaurant. And, you know, we haven't owned it for years. But, you know, mom and I did it together. And we'll feel like we're surrounded by her. So we go in this restaurant. And we have this really beautiful meal. And we all talk about my mom. And 
it was like 15 of us there. And, and at the end of the meal, the now owner of the restaurant walked up to the table and was like, it was like, Hey, I'm so sorry about your mom. And you know, she painted all these, right? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, he's like, tell me the story again. And then he goes, which blue dog was your favorite? And I said, see that one right there in the field of poppies. I go, that's the first one that she did. Cause it was my favorite. And I was like, try to paint this one. And he goes, and he left the table and he went, he pulled it off the wall. It's a giant painting. And he goes, well, it's going home with you tonight. Awesome. And so there was so much nostalgia inside that room. Yeah. Like I could point to so many things and be like, we refinished that bar together and she painted all these and she hung those clocks and I tried to paint the ceiling. The ceiling was, was black and I thought I could do it myself. And so I rented scaffolding and I laid down on my back and had one of these like paint sprayers and viz queened everything. It, th- three minutes in, it was like, never going to work. I was like, she's like, hire someone to paint the ceiling. Um, and so I was like, I remember that. So it was just kind of beautiful to be in that space. And like it, in a really sad moment, it it made us feel happy for a little while. And that's the power of restaurants and the power of hospitality and the power of people paying attention. That guy was paying attention that night. Like we all pay attention sometimes, but we don't do anything about it. We we can we can play these little cameo roles in other people's lives and jump in and jump out and completely change the temperature of the scene that we're in if you're paying attention. And I've, I've seen that happen a, a few times in my life that, that completely changed the trajectory of my life. Yeah. My, my favorite hospitality story is a guy came in to my restaurant one night, uh, one day, and it was his 25th wedding anniversary. And I've told this on online before. Um, and he, his father had given him a bottle of wine on his wedding night. And it was a bottle of 1961 Chateau Lafitte. And so it was our anniversary and they were going to open it for this. And his father had now passed away. So he, he, the invitation to the anniversary party was a picture of the bottle. And so he brought it in early for me to decant. I decant it and it's corked. Mm-hmm. And the man cries hysterically in front of me. Oh. He's like, I've stored it all these years. I can't believe it. And I was like, I go, what if we replace it with like another bottle of wine? He's like, he goes, these people are all wine savvy. They're going to know that 97 silver oak is not this yeah, bottle. I'm like, crap. I'm like, let me think of it for a second. I go, okay. I said, I know a guy down the street who has a huge wine cellar. He's retired and he's a total romantic. I go, let me call him. He's like, Kevin, I, I can't afford to buy another one of these bottles. I go, just give me a second. I call Bob. I tell him the situation. He goes, I don't have a 61, but I have a 66. And he goes, 66 is still a really good year. He goes, I'll give it to you for a hundred bucks. I was like, I didn't even look at the guy. I go, sold. I go, I'll be right back. I went down, I ran, I got it. I go, you and I are the only two that know that that bottle's corked. I go, I'm going to rinse it out. I'm going to open this bottle. We're going to pour this bottle inside of that bottle. Yeah. And the people come, we pour one for everybody. And he gives this long speech about his father and, not a dry on the house. Mm. And then they all drink the wine and everyone was talking about, this is the greatest glass of wine I've ever had in my entire life. And there was like, it's a little bit left in the bottle. And he, Bob, the guy came over and he poured the last two ounces for me and he grabbed my face, Italian guy, kissed me on both cheeks and he whispered in my ear, he goes, you're a beautiful liar, young man. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. And it was, and 
it just dawned on me. I mean, that wasn't that much effort. It was a phone call and a drive for me. Yeah. And a, and a little white lie, but that sort of thing happens all the time. Yeah. That's great. Um, that is an awesome story. It's a good note to end on. <laughs> yeah. Kevin, thanks so much hey, for joining us. Thanks, this is great. Yeah, thanks for being Appreciate here. Appreciate it. And that concludes our conversation with Kevin Bame of Boca Group. Thanks for listening. Remember to check us out on social media at Joiners Pod on Instagram. We've determined that we do have a Twitter account. But I'm not sure Danny's active on it yet. So <laughs> if you're interested in interacting with Danny Shapiro, uh, please reach out to us. What is our handle on Twitter? Is it the same? I think it's Joiner's Pod. At Joiner's Pod? Yeah. Okay. I think it's called X. X? Oh, sorry. Not Twitter. <laughs> X. Is that is X going down? <laughs> Would you be sad? Yeah, who can say? No, I never engaged with Twitter or X. Um, anyway, uh, this episode was produced by <laughs> Matt Haddock, music by Captain Cuts, and reels by the one and only Joseph Guzzo III. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.